Well, the concept of agency explains it. It explains it perfectly without having to resort to this mysterious unity between the angel and Yahweh as if there's some kind of distinction between them, but yet there's not a distinction between them. Welcome back to the One God Report podcast. Bill Schlegel here. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Troy Salinger, house painter and theologian, about the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in Hebrew is Malach Yodhevavhe. Malach is the angel or messenger. Why, when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, does it seem like sometimes he's separate from God, separate from Yudhevavhe? But then the text will speak as if the angel of the Lord is Yahweh. What's going on here? Are there two different beings that can be considered the same being? In this episode, I believe Troy Salinger gives us the key for understanding who the angel of the Lord is and what his relationship is to God. And that key is agency. The angel of the Lord is God's agent. He represents God. He is an extension of Yahweh's purpose and will and even Yahweh's person. And as such, he can be rightfully regarded as Yahweh, the one who sent him, whom he speaks for. Once this concept of agency is understood, much of what seemed confusing or contradictory about who appeared in the Old Testament, was it the angel or was it Yahweh himself, becomes very clear. So, to our discussion, who is the angel of the Lord? And is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the Son of God? Troy, I've heard many times the claim that the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, is sometimes, or most of the time, maybe somebody thinks all the time, an appearance of a pre-incarnate Jesus. Can you tell us a little bit about this whole idea of the angel of the Lord and maybe why some people think that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? Sure. This idea started with Justin in the middle of the second century. No writer prior to him made any mention of this. So he's the first uh, to equate the angel of Yahweh with the pre-incarnate Son of God. And Troy, I'm going to interrupt you again. Including uh -huh. the New Testament, right? There's nobody in the New Testament that says the angel of the Lord was Jesus. Or Jesus yeah. didn't say, you know that angel of the Lord back there that wrestled with Jacob? That was me. These are not New Testament authors that are saying this. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, we can state categorically that there is no explicit statement in either the Old Testament or the New Testament that equates the angel of the Lord with Jesus, the, the Son of God. Mm. The whole idea is built on inference because there is no explicit statement in, in Scripture. And like I said, you know, it wasn't until the middle of the second century that this idea even came into existence. So what it, it, it basically, it 
has become a tradition. And this is why it is known by so many Christians today. I mean, it is rare to find Christians, although, although there are some scholars who think a little deeper and think a little better than, you know, your average Christian, and they, they don't even hold to this idea. To be okay, honest. so who is the angel of the Lord then? Well, you know, because of the lack of explicit biblical statements, one has to find scriptural support by inference. Okay, so the way this is usually done is they'll say, well, you know, the angel of the Lord appears, and when he does, he speaks in the first person as Yahweh. And in the narrative, it speaks of the angel of the Lord as if it was Yahweh. And then they'll say, well, <clears throat> the New Testament says that no one has ever seen God. They interpret that to mean God the Father. And they'll say, so that this angel then must be God the Son. Okay, so they don't have any scriptural statements, you know, explicit biblical statements they come to it by inference. Okay, so what they say, the main thing is because this angel of the Lord seems to be Yahweh himself, right? Uh, he speaks like Yahweh, first person. The text will say, and then Yahweh did this or Yahweh said this, but it's referring to the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord must be Yahweh. Well, there's a number of problems with that. First off, I mean, if it was Yahweh himself, and this would be for people, not so much for those who think it's necessarily pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, but some people think uh, these are theophanies, that it was God himself appear. We could just, you know, dismiss that right out of hand, because if it was Yahweh himself appearing, then why don't it just say Yahweh appeared? Why say the angel of Yahweh? Okay, so because it says the angel of Yahweh, it has to be somebody distinct from Yahweh, but the Trinitarians say it's the Son of God who is both God and distinct from the Father. Okay, so the way I would argue this is to first point out that it is far from certain that the angel of the Lord is a title given to one specific entity. This would have to be the case if the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate son of God appearing throughout the Old Testament. Then every time the phrase, the angel of Yahweh appears, it's got to be referring to the same specific individual entity, correct? Mm -hmm. And that entity would be the son of God. So the fact that uh, most English Bibles anyway would say the angel of the Lord. This is usually taken as proof that, well, it is the same specific ind individual that is being referred to every time you see the phrase. And this is because in the, in the Hebrew, there is what is called the construct state, where you have two nouns that are joined together in a genitive construction. You have the first noun is the construct noun, the second noun is the absolute. And because it's a genitive construction, you would normally put the word of in there. So in, in this case, you have the phrase Malak Yahweh. Then you can put the word of, Malak of Yahweh. And because Yahweh is a proper noun, it is definite. And 
the absolute noun governs the construct noun as far as definiteness goes. So because Yahweh is definite, then Malak must be definite. And so hence you have the angel of Yahweh. As if there's only one. Right, as if it's, there's only one angel, the one who bears the title, the angel of Yahweh. And whenever you see that phrase, it is this specific being that is being referred to. While that, you know, all of that is true, okay, uh, about the construct state and how you derive the definiteness of the, the term. But here's the problem with that, okay? That although technically it is definite, the angel of Yahweh, on a practical level, it doesn't have to be taken as definite. And this can be shown in many ways. First of all, when you look at the Septuagint version, that is the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, we find something quite strange. Oh, it's not really strange. It would be strange for the Trinitarian who's trying to use this as proof. What you find is that the Septuagint translates these phrases, the angel of Yahweh, Malak Yahweh. They translate it in different ways. Okay, so let's say in, you come across a pericope in the Old Testament where, uh, you know, a story of the, appearance of the angel of the Lord appears to someone. The first time the angel appears, it'll be indefinite. In the Septuagint, it'll just say, Angelos Curios, without the definite article in front of Angelos. Just an angel of the Lord. Right, an angel of the Lord. Then, as the pericope goes on, in subsequent mentions of the angel of the Lord, it'll have the definite article because it's referring back now to that specific angel that was first mentioned at the beginning of the Purim. Mm -hmm. So this is very telling, okay, that these Jewish scribes who translated their Hebrew Bible into Greek, they're seeing the same phrase in each occasion, okay? It simply says Malach Yahweh in the Hebrew text, but on the first mentions in any given story, they do not put a definite article in the Greek, but they will put the definite article on subsequent mentions. Are you following that? I am, and it makes perfect sense. Look, if God sends Gabriel, he's the angel of the Lord, but then he might send Michael. Well, he's the angel of the Lord. So we can understand that you can use the definite article, especially as you explain where this Hebrew construct state, because of the proper name Yahweh there, it's going to tend to be translated with a different article. It doesn't have to be. So we can understand it could be a different individual. There's no doubt about it. Yes. Now, uh, further proof that, that this construct state, although technically would be definite, it doesn't have to be so on a practical level. There, there are other examples of the construct state that we find in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Probably the most clear example would be in the case of the phrase Ebed Yahweh, which uh, means the servant of Yahweh. This is a phrase that occurs many times in the Old Testament. So technically it, it is the servant of Yahweh. So 
Are we to assume that there is only one servant of Yahweh because uh, the phrase is definite? Well, absolutely not. In fact, we have many examples where in specific contexts, a person is named and is called the servant of Yahweh. Moses, Joshua, David are specifically called the servant of Yahweh. So we see that although the phrase is definite, it doesn't refer to one specific individual, the same individual each time it's used. Mm -hmm. There are other examples too, that the construct state can be taken as indefinite. This leads to the conclusion that the phrase Malak Yahweh should not necessarily be understood as definite in every case. For sure. Yeah, no, I was going to say, you know, I, I came to, these, to, to this conclusion on my own study, okay? I studied, as I was studying these things, I, you know, I, I began to see these things. But I wanted to see what people more knowledgeable than I had to say about it. So I began to look online, try to find some scholarly sources. I came across a couple of scholarly papers that were saying the exact same thing about the phrase Malak Yahweh. That, you know, there's this ongoing, there has been an ongoing debate of whether it should be taken as definite or indefinite. And these scholars uh, came to the conclusions that I had seen my, myself in my own study. And it was satisfying for me to, to get confirmation of what I had come to see. I recently uh, listened to a podcast, the Church Grammar uh, podcast, where a young scholar was being uh, interviewed about a book he had just written. I believe his name is Gil Hooney. He just wrote a book on angels and demons. And during the interview, he uh, was asked by the podcaster about the angel of the Lord. Bill, I'm telling you, everything this guy said, it sounded like he was reading it off of my article. Mm. I mean, he said everything word for word that I have on my article about the phrase Malak Yahweh. Again, very satisfying for me to, to have that confirmation from scholars okay mm -hmm. there are scholarly sources who uh, back up what i'm saying mm -hmm. and troy in your article you mentioned a couple of other verses that make it clear that the malach yahweh the phrase malach we're translating here as angel but we we need to keep in mind that malach the real meaning of it is a messenger yes. because the role of angels is often a messenger that it serves a double purpose there, but there can be a non-angelic messenger. And we can see the phrase Malach Adonai, the angel of the Lord. For instance, Haggai yes, introduces sir. himself or Haggai is called the angel of Yahweh. Uh, Haggai chapter one, verse 13, Haggai, the angel of Yahweh yes. spoke the message of Yahweh to the people. So prophets, and priests, that is, human beings, are the angel or the angels, either way, the angel of, of Yahweh. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7 says very specifically, and here sometimes the English translations are a little bit not so clear. Malachi 2, 7 says, for the lips of a priest 
right? The, the Kohen, the priest of Yahweh. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. So yes. here the priest, the descendant of Levi, is called the Malach Jehovah, Malach Adonai of hosts. And I think people are probably too quick to jump to the divine realm. This is only my personal view. Mm -hmm. I think when people see the angel of Yahweh, because of that tendency of the Christian world since the second century to want to find some other divine figure there, I think people are too quick to jump into the divine realm. And I think we should always keep in mind that the possibility that the angel, the messenger of Yahweh, is a human being. I think that's a very good point. The fact that in the Hebrew Bible, there are two human beings. Okay, well, one specific, Haggai, and then priests in general. These are human persons, right? Mm -hmm. These human persons are given the, the designation Malach Yahweh. Mm -hmm. That alone really ought to caution Trinitarians from wanting to use this as a proof of ultimately of the deity of Christ. Human beings are designated by the same phrase. That speaks a lot. Troy, let me ask you this. What is a better way then to understand these passages in the Old Testament where sometimes the angel of Yahweh speaks as if he is Yahweh Sometimes he refers to Yahweh in the third person, like Yahweh is somebody different. Okay, so you've laid out the problem, okay, that this angel of the Lord appears when he's called the angel of the Lord or the messenger of Yahweh. So it would appear to be somebody distinct from Yahweh. But then you get these passages where this Malach Yahweh speaks in the first person as though it were Yahweh. Or the, the author, the narrator of the story, was, will accredit what the angel does to Yahweh. Okay, so what we need to look at is the concept of, of agency, okay? So in the culture of the ancient Near East, the concept of agency was very common. Although the idea has seemed to escape the notice of most of Christendom for 2,000 years. But thankfully, scholarship in, in the area of A&E studies in the 20th century has helped to throw light on this. Let me, let me give you a couple of quotes from scholars. Mm -hmm. This is John Walton in the, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. This is what he says on Genesis chapter 16. This is the story of when uh, Hagar ran away from Abraham and the angel of the Lord appeared to her. The okay. first time the angel of the Lord appears in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Is it the first time? Okay. I think it is, yeah. Okay. So this is what he says about that. He says, quote, In the ancient world, direct communication between important parties was a rarity. Diplomatic and political exchange usually required the use of an intermediary, 
a function that our ambassadors exercise today. The messenger who served as the intermediary, intermediary was a fully vested representative of the party he represented. He spoke for that party and with the authority of that party, he was accorded the same treatment as that party would enjoy were he there in person. While this was standard protocol, there was no confusion about the person's identity. This explains how the angel in this chapter, that is Genesis 16, can comfortably use the first person to convey what God will do. When official words are spoken by the representative, everyone understands that he is not speaking for himself, but is merely conveying the words, opinions, policies, and decisions of his liege. So, in Ugaritic literature, when Baal sends messengers to Mott, the messengers use first-person forms of speech. E.T. Mullen concludes that such usage, quote, signify that the messengers not only are envoys of the God, but actually embody the power of their sender, end quote. Mm -hmm. This is, this is uh, remarkable. And again, this is not just some blogger saying this. This is Old Testament scholar John Walton. Mm -hmm. um, I think his credentials speak for him, okay? He is uh, an expert in A&E studies uh, as ancient Near East. And he says that this, this was a common practice, that when a messenger was sent to represent the person who sent him, that that messenger was fully a fully vested representative of the person who sent him. Mm -hmm. He spoke with the authority of that person. He had the resources of that person behind him. Whatever he did in his official capacity would be attributed to the person who sent him. Mm -hmm. It was a very common practice. And from what I understand, it still is today in Middle Eastern countries. Uh, sure. This is a practice we, you know, we, we're not completely ignorant of it in our culture, right? I mean, John Walton even mentions that what we call today ambassadors uh, pretty much fill the same role as ancient, these ancient messengers did. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying that we're not totally unfamiliar with it. We have the idea of the power of attorney where we grant certain privileges and rights to somebody else to represent us and they fully represent us. If you reject that person representing me, you reject me. And we have phrases like Truman dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Well, did he really, mm -hmm. right? Through agents, through his representatives, through the pilot, through the bombardier, through the commanders that sent him. So yeah. we can understand this idea. Let's not be clever and think, oh, this, this doesn't really work. We understand it very clearly in our times as well. Yes. Let me give you one more quote. This is from Aubrey R. Johnson in his book, The One and the Many in the Israelite Conception of God. And he expresses the concept of agency like this. Quote, in Hebrew thought, a patriarch's personality extended through his entire household. In a specialized sense, when the patriarch, as lord of his household, deputized his trusted servant as his malach, the man was endowed with the authority and resources of his Lord to represent him fully and transact business in his name. In Semitic thought, this messenger representative 
was conceived of as being personally, and in his very words, the presence of the sender. Bingo. Yes. It becomes so clear once a person understands that. Yes. So I think the phenomena that we see in, in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord appears, at first it'll say the angel of the Lord appeared to so-and-so. Then as the story progresses, it'll just say, and Yahweh said, well, the concept of agency explains it. It explains it perfectly without having to resort to this mysterious unity between the angel and Yahweh as if there's some kind of distinction between them, but yet there's not a distinction between them. You know, this is how Trinitarians try to explain it. They often, like a big proponent of this is Dr. Michael Heiser. And he's very big when he on this, when he gives lectures on this. The way he tries to describe it, you know, he'll get very descriptive about, it's so mysterious. Is it Yahweh or isn't it Yahweh? It's like, we're confused, like we can't figure it out. And no, it's not, it's not that confusing. <laughs> Once you understand the Semitic concept of agency, all of these passages are easily explained and understood. Like I said, you know, if we, we could go through each one of those passages and show as we go verse by verse, show exactly what is going on. And by the end of, of that, you will get a clear picture of how the scripture uses the terminology. So when the author of any Old Testament writing is relating one of these incidents when the angel of the Lord appears, because he knows that this angel of the Lord is representing Yahweh, once the angel of the Lord has been introduced, he is free, the author is free to refer to the actions and words of the messenger as Yahweh himself. Mm -hmm. That just is what agency is all about. There's no real mystery to it. There's not a metaphysical union between the messenger and Yahweh. All of that is unnecessary. It can be explained very simply and easily by the concept of agency. Mm -hmm. This concept of agency uh, is not just seen in the Old Testament. It carries over into the New Testament. One of the ways that it works out is however a messenger is received by the people he, whom he is sent to is actually in reality how the person who sent him is being received. If the messenger is received favorably, that is, in effect, they are ex receiving the one who sent the messenger. If they reject the messenger, then in effect, they are rejecting the person who sent the messenger. Mm -hmm. Jesus makes this plain a number of times in the Gospels. For instance, John 12, 44 and 45, Jesus says, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. Mm. He also said this uh, about his disciples, right? He, we, when he sent his disciples out, 
to proclaim the kingdom of God in the cities of, of Galilee. He tells them in Matthew 10, 40, he says, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. So this is just the language of agency, right? It is. Yep. The person who is sent represents the person who sent them. Now, this is even brought out even clearer. There's one passage in the Gospels which really make this plain. If you recall the story in uh, the Gospels of the centurion who comes to Jesus on behalf of his servant who's sick. Well, this story occurs in two Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke. In Matthew's account, this is in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, it reads, And when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in much suffering. If we go to uh, Luke's account, Luke chapter 7, in verse 3, Luke says that the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. Well, this on the surface, this looks like a contradiction between Matthew and Luke, right? Matthew says the centurion came to Jesus and asked for Jesus to come heal his servant. Luke says the centurion sent a delegation of Jewish elders to Jesus to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. And this has been pointed out by these atheists online who like to point out contradictions, so-called contradictions in the scripture, right? Uh, this is one of the things they, they point out, that this is a contradiction. Well, no, it isn't a contradiction. If you understand the concept of agency, then it makes perfect sense. The actual reality is that the centurion requested a group of Jewish elders that they would go for him to see Jesus and to ask Jesus to come and heal the servant. They were acting on his behalf. They were not beseeching Jesus for themselves to come and heal the servant. They were beseeching Jesus on behalf of the centurion. They were acting as agents of the centurion. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is, it's proper for Matthew to, in recounting that story, to just leave out the intermediaries and to just say the centurion came to Jesus asking for help. Mm -hmm. Because in effect, the centurion did go to Jesus asking for help. He went in and through the agents that he employed to do it. The concept is very simple. It's not, it's not difficult at all. And when applied to the biblical text about the angel of Yahweh, it makes perfect sense of those passages. It clears up any of the mystique, the mystery. Some people might not like that. Some people like mystique and mystery when they read scripture. <laughs> I like to keep things simple. I think the simplest explanation for anything is probably the better explanation. And this explanation of those passages is so simple and makes so much sense that any, anything else is just unnecessary. 
have no speculation about the second god figure and how that one can be seen and the other one can't be seen and all these other really mythological ideas of who God and Jesus are. Absolutely. Yes. One of my favorite passages for showing agency to Troy, and I'd like to have you back to talk about some of the specific passages in the Old Testament that people think is a pre-incarnate appearance of God or Jesus. So yeah. let's plan on that. But in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to Ahaz. And then Isaiah 7, 10 says, again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. Yeah. Now, can we see that it's actually the prophet Isaiah, Yahweh's representative, who opened his mouth and formed words and put that sound into the ear of Ahaz? But it's as if Yahweh himself speaking. Actually, it is Yahweh himself speaking yes, to Ahaz. Exactly. Yes, It's a perfect example. Uh, what makes it so good is that it's a human example. Okay? It's not an, a, a celestial being that we're talking about here. It's a human being. Everybody knows Isaiah is a human being. Yet, in that passage, the words of Isaiah are attributed to Yahweh. Mm -hmm. yep. It's just a fantastic example of what we're saying, correct? Mm -hmm. Agency. Yep. Agency. When a author is relating a story about what an agent is saying or doing, they can just simply put in the name of the person who they are representing. That's perfectly acceptable. It's, it's reasonable, and you see it all over Scripture. So, Troy, thanks a lot. I look forward to having another session where we can look closer at some of these passages because you and I both know that, wow, for many people, this these are slam dunks that here's Jesus back there appearing somehow before he was born a man in Bethlehem. So appreciate your time, Troy, and look forward to getting back with you again. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, really enjoyed this and look forward to doing it again. All right, great. In our next episode, we plan to look at some of these appearances of the angel of the Lord and see the idea of agency, that is, that the angel of the Lord represents Yahweh. A little heads up, you may want to take a look ahead of time at Acts chapter 7, verses 30 to 38, and see how the disciple Stephen understood that it was an angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And it was an angel or angels, messengers of Yahweh, of the Lord, who even mediated or brought the Torah. And since these messengers, since these angels were authorized by Yahweh, the biblical text can present the event that this is Yahweh himself. So we look forward to the next session with Troy Salinger. One little request, if you haven't done so already, please go over to the Bill Schlegel YouTube channel and subscribe. The more subscribers there are, the more these podcasts and other videos will show up in feeds of others. Yishma'u anavim, the Yismahu. The humble will hear and rejoice.